Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about some lessons we can all learn from the collapse of Mars Hill Church, which began in Seattle, Washington. Mars Hill, as you probably know, was planted by Mark Driscoll and a handful of other folks in 1996, and it grew into a multi-site church with campuses in multiple states, a ministry empire of sorts, reaching thousands of folks for Jesus. But in its later years, amidst allegations of unhealthy leadership, accusations of plagiarism, and reports of anger issues and consolidation of power, stress fractures were taking their toll. In August 2014, Driscoll and Mars Hill were removed from the Acts 29 Church Planting Network, which uh, Driscoll was the president of. And one month later, in October 2014, in response to growing pressure within the church and without, he resigned as pastorate. I want to tell you uh, from the outset that if you're listening to this podcast episode for some juicy gossip, you've come to the wrong place. Uh, So, yeah, I just want to get that out of the way um, from the get-go. But this church's ministry was so influential for so many of us, myself included, and despite its unique place in modern church history, I think there are some takeaways for all of us, big church or little church or anywhere in between. And so today we have with us Miles Rohde. Miles is the lead pastor at Redemption Spokane in Spokane, Washington, which uh, was at its inception uh, a Mars Hill satellite campus, Mars Hill, Spokane. Is that right, Miles? Yeah, that's right. Mars Hill, Spokane. So uh, today, uh, Redemption, Spokane. And uh, Miles, as one who was there, um, he's going to help us process some of the lessons that we can learn uh, from this uh, tragic episode. Miles, thank you for being with us today, brother. Hey, thanks for letting me be on with yeah, um, I just wanted, you know, from the start, if you could, um, you know, from your perspective, which I think is uh, a lot more enlightened from most of our perspectives, you know, just kind of give us an overview of of what happened. You know, what when we talk about the fall of Mars Hill, um, what does that mean? What exactly went down? Yeah, um, <clears throat> there really are quite a few things. You kind of uh, alluded to them even in your introduction. Uh, there really are so many things that if, if we were to pinpoint even one or a handful of them, it, it may not be super helpful um, or even paint a clear picture of what was truly kind of the underlying issue uh, at that time. And, and for, in my estimation, just what I observed and experienced, uh, the underlying issue was just an unhealthy church culture uh, that, not no, that not only existed from the top down, but also rose up from the bottom up and somewhere in the middle it was just uh just pretty ugly yeah so i mean without you know nitty-gritty i'm not trying to fish for details here but what are some you know larger examples of you know what you refer to as an unhealthy church culture what would be some sort of unhealthy practices or or systems there yeah uh so by the time the 213 rolled around or 2013 rolled around uh, a lot that had transpired over the years just in how uh, plurality functioned, how uh, church staff was expected to operate and work in in the course of a work week. Um, So much of of the unhealth within the culture uh, had taken place. And there were elders who were suspicious of senior leaders, senior leaders who were suspicious of elders, uh, and, and even local church elders felt like they had a voice, but the structure was so spread out, so large, that there was no way for that even even to work. And so the suspicion grew, distrust grew, 
Uh, many of the local church bodies were suspicious of the whole thing, and by the time that 2013 rolled around and into 2014, too many sides were drawn. Uh, now, this didn't, it didn't happen necessarily in every location uh, with the same intensity, but it, it certainly happened to the point where nobody should have been comfortable with it ever, but, uh, and not saying that anybody was, but that was the suit that we were swimming in at, at that time. Um, an example of an unhealthy church culture from what we were experiencing was, like I mentioned earlier, the, the work week, the demands on, on staff, the demands on uh, the eldership, whether it was lay eldership or, or staff elders. Uh, everybody knew that you were responsible to work hard and to be faithful and steward your time well. But, uh, you know, there were things that were mentioned, hey, there's really no place for hobbies. Um, we work really hard. Uh, we compensate well, but we work really hard and really long hours. And by the time um, I was about to transition from Seattle over to Spokane to begin the, the core group development phase of our church here, um, elders in the location that I was in, in Bellevue, Washington, uh, we're working somewhere between uh, six and six and a half days a week, if not close to seven, because there was a, a desire to start a Saturday evening service. So that's—I think—that was kind of the um, the tip of the iceberg that started to reveal itself in in one way. And there were other things in other of the local settings, but that's one that was very clear. We will just run ragged, uh, and we knew it, and we expected it, and. And many of us signed up because of it and for it. Um, we felt like we were making a, a difference. We This was a, a church of great influence and significance. And and we felt, you know, hey, we get to be a part of that. And that just wasn't healthy at all. Yeah, you'd mentioned that. Um, uh, when Miles said, you know, that he had referred to this earlier, he's referring to a, uh, you know, sort of a offline pre-conversation that we'd had about, um, you, you know some of these subjects, and in that conversation, Miles, you mentioned um, in relation to these things that you just talked about. Uh, in in essence, that the success or or the growth um, became itself kind of a justification, right? Like so, it's it's working in some way, um, and so it becomes more difficult to sort of question, you know, some of the things that are going on, the long work weeks, or you know, the burdens that are put on on, on folks, the the unhealthy expectations. Of um, you know that you're going to ne- you know neglect personal care or, or even your family, um, right. you know because the thing is is growing. I mean, how hard is it in in situations like that to be you know the person or the few people who you know are willing to kind of raise your hand and say, you know, hold on a second, uh, I'm not sure this is how it's supposed to be. Is you know why is it so difficult yeah. to you know to do that? Yeah, it, it's really quite confusing. And, and my perspective is uh, quite a bit different um, than a majority of the people in terms of staff and, and eldership, just because of where I came along in, in the history of Mars Hill. Uh, there were many uh, faithful brothers who had served uh, from the very beginning all the way till the very end or uh, just a few years prior to, to Mars Hill dissolving, who, who had to wrestle more with those kinds of things where uh, it was difficult for them to wrap their minds and even their hearts around such unhealth and such toxicity because there were tremendous things that took place 
uh, about which all of us would rejoice and celebrate if they were happening in our current location. And so uh, that's what was confusing. And it caused many of us and, and even some of the friends that I, that I knew there would have conversations with me about this. It caused many of us to kind of question, our, okay, are we just, are we wrong in thinking that maybe there are some unhealthy things going on? Because it, it seems that there is success. There, there are people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. There are marriages being healed. There are you know, amazing things taking place. Um, should I just kind of stay quiet? Am, am, I, am I discontented? Uh, whatever. Uh, it was really confusing for a lot of people. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, even just the numeric growth itself, you see this in, in all kinds of churches. I actually saw it in, you know, in churches that I pastored that, you know, that grew. Um, nobody wants to be the one to seem like, you know, um, you know you're Debbie Downer <laughs> or what have you. Yeah. And if you have a concern or, or critique, and but everybody else seems happy and the place is filling up, like how could you argue with that? Why would you be against you know, people coming to church and, and, and that sort of thing. And so I think, you know, uh, regardless of whether someone specifically or a group of people is stifling critique, just the growth itself, you know, just the environment, um, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, stifles, uh, you know, constructive criticism because nobody wants to be the one to sort of, um, you know, poo-poo on, on what's going on, um, you know, even, yeah. you know, among the success. So you mentioned... Um, in, in our previous conversation as well, a few other, um, I think, sort of touch points, takeaways that I think would be applicable for our listeners, um, things that you identified as, um, you know, evidences or, or symptoms, um, perhaps, uh, of an unhealthy culture. And one of them um, had to do, um, you alluded to it earlier, with uh, plurality, the concept of, you know, plurality of elders. I think most of our listeners, perhaps not all, but most of our listeners would agree that plurality of pastors is a biblical model, um, if not the, a biblical model. Um, what is it about, you know, um, how plurality is handled, um, however, that can be unhealthy? Yeah, uh, there was this terminology that we would use towards the end, and, and I think it, the the motivation behind it was, was right and, and good, <clears throat> but the uh, how it was executed uh, in terms of uh, how we functioned as an eldership was not um, terms like first among equals. And I think we, you know, by and large understand what that means for a lead guy to be in a plurality of eldership and other, and other pastors, but that also involves a parity among those other elders where uh, the lead guy, while he necessarily, he does have some influence in that little body uh, of leaders, uh, he he's not something special in terms of uh, that it's all all about him. That his 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 voice, his view, and his vote is one aspect of this plurality, and and that just didn't get to happen. <clears throat> partly because uh, the, I think the church was just really too large in in how it was trying to scale uh, in a cascading sort of way its its eldership. Uh, we were a plurality if you were to think that uh, just by sheer number of elders. I think by the time that we, that the church dissolved, there were 70-some elders, um, uh, lay elders and, and staff elders. And, and so it's, it's impossible to have parity among that many, that many people. And so they tried to cascade some of that. But 
uh, it, 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 the execution of it wasn't really done well. Uh, and what it caused for us was uh, it didn't, the questions that needed to be asked uh, oftentimes didn't get to where they needed to be to be asked. And, and elders who truly felt called to be a part of you know, what the Lord was doing at Mars Hill and felt the call in their life to be elders, pastors, uh, even as, as lay shepherds, uh, felt like, well, we have to have a place where our, our voice and, and even our, our vote, if you will, mattered. And it, it just wasn't working itself out that way. So the opportunity to ask questions, um, I mean, it was there. But you had to be careful on, on how and, and even who, uh, with whom you ask those questions. Yeah, and, you know, I think the phrase or the, you know, the concept of a first among equals, um, you know, can be a healthy thing in the sense of, you know, someone functioning as, uh, you know, like a lead vision caster or the primary preaching voice or, um, you know, to some extent, almost like, you know, any committee has a chairman or, or, or that sort of thing. Right. Uh, but when we lose that second part of the phrase, the equals, um, you know, can get pretty, uh, I, I suppose, in, imbalanced. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something as well uh, about the importance of not just the local leadership or the way that the, the plurality and the parity uh, was managed, but also, um, you know, about the preaching voice, about local preaching, the importance of local preaching at um, you know, different campuses or different plants. Um, could you speak to that just for a second? You know, why is it important for, um, you know, every church, every campus of a multi-site church, you know, as an example, uh, to have um, a local, you know, uh, a local preaching voice? Yeah. Um, in the midst of my time there, I think intellectually and even ecclesiologically, we would say that that, I would think, of course, that's a, that's a great thing. Um, but many of us came to Mars Hill because we understood that you know, there was a guy who was uniquely gifted and uh, with a unique influence uh, in the culture and even in evangelicalism. Uh, why wouldn't we want to be a part of and even submit to that that voice being kind of the voice that that, that the church hears from? And and so many of us just we we came to Mars Hill understanding that we were probably not ever going to get the opportunity to preach, even though. Many of us were called uh, to pastor and to, to preach God's Word. So in the midst of it, maybe towards the end we started to realize, but in the midst of it, it was, um, okay, this is working for us. So there really wasn't that impetus to say and to, to even try or believe we needed to have some localized preaching in those locations. So it was, until, it was after we, we dissolved as a church and, and those churches that could uh, either go independently or like our church that had the, the church plant launch by by itself, that's when I think all of us really started to recognize that this is this was one of those key elements of, of just church life, whether it's for satellite churches or, or not, where the local preaching matters. Local expression where that under shepherd is in community with with the with the flock. They know him, he knows them and and they hear his voice, and uh, and that is now starting to, to reap some significant benefits in the churches that, that remain. Uh, but it was until after we had uh, dissolved that I think many of us really recognized, wow, this is what we needed to be doing. And and we're grateful now to be able to, to do it. Uh, 
but but in the in the midst of it, it, it was hard to see. I even had an example where when we were coming over from from Seattle to work on Spokane, uh, Marshall Spokane. I had local pastors, uh, kind of from our, our theological tribe, who were real leery of the fact that Marshall was coming in because it was going to be a video venue. And, and they even said to me uh, when they met me, you know, I'm not sure you're a real church because there's not local preaching in the pulpit here. And, and I took offense to that um, <laughs> because I knew my call. Um, I knew what I felt the Lord was calling me to do and why he moved us to Mars Hill uh, to plant Marshall Spokane. But I didn't fully recognize the weight and the significance of it until after we dissolved and and, uh, and our church had a regular diet of local live without the video preaching. Uh, and that, that's been huge. So I've, I've since then reached out to those guys who, who had some difficulties and said, you know, you were right. Uh, this is much better. Hey, let's take a coffee break here and hear from our host, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah. No, you know, I think if, if we were to scale what you're describing here, you know, down to, you know, the average pastor, probably most of the pastors listening um, to this, or ministry leaders, or, or churchgoers, are not part of um, you know a multi-site church, perhaps not even you know part of a uh, a very large church. But the application is still there. So um, yeah. you know the concepts of of plurality and parity uh, are there on the um, you know single church you know uh, you know non-multi-site church scale. When you know if you're to build. Uh, you know, your ministry or the identity or the brand, if you will, I suppose, um, of your church around one voice, even if it's, um, you know, you do have live local preaching. If the church's existence is built around uh, one guy, whether, you know, he's a, a, you know, a big platform guy or just, you know, the biggest deal you've got. If, you know, if your ministry life is, is built around that one guy, what happens when, you know, that guy gets hit by a bus or, you know, God right. forbid has an affair or, you know, has a fall. It, it, it you know, it almost um, necessitates, uh, you know, the collapse of the ministry itself. I was just reading this past week um, about another, uh, you, you know, pastor um, who you know, had to leave the ministry for other reasons. And the church was reporting, I mean, the local news was reporting. Um, I mean, this is the local newspaper was reporting on the decline in in attendance by the thousands um, of this church after this, you know, lead pastor, you know, um, you know, had to leave. And, you know, I just thought of, you know, the, you know, the public witness of that. Someone's right. picking up their daily newspaper, not a believer at all. And they're reading this thing and going, wow, thousands of people would leave a church because this one guy 
um, which kind of tells you something about, you know, why they were clued in to that church or why they were drawn to that church, because it was a devotion to that guy, not to, you know, the life of the body or the, or the community. Um, so. Right. And, and I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you follow up, please. Yeah, that, that is exactly uh, what it was like at the, at the very end uh, with Marsville, that, uh, it was a unique thing to see where at the church where the live preaching was taking place that, um, you know, if our lead guy wasn't there, we wouldn't announce a, a church preaching calendar so that people could plan their, their attendance around that. But you could just see a, a large portion of the church that would show up, uh, very disgruntled, very disappointed that, the lead guy wasn't preaching, uh, that we got a sub, um, and, and they would either leave or just their body, uh, their body language would be, you know, a complete wreck. And so that's a, that's a sign of, of ill health as well. It's that the, that the church kind of creates that culture of being, you know, a, about, not so that it's about that one man, but, but if the church doesn't do anything to raise up others, uh, to be able to utilize the gifts that God has given in, in the preaching and, and ministry of the church, uh, it's going to be so dependent, whether you're 10,000 plus or you're a church our size, um, you know, just under 200 with, with adults, they're going to be so dependent on that, that one voice. And that's not, that's not healthy at all. Yeah. And well, and it's not healthy. I mean, not even just thinking organizationally or, or the, you know, security of the institution, but just in terms of discipleship, um, you know, about 15 years ago, you know, my wife and I were involved in a church where the elders very sadly, um, you know, had to, you know, dismiss the pastor. He, you know, he had disqualified himself uh, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, some of us, you know, weren't clued into that. We had no idea that you know, some of these things were going down. And, you know, as far as we knew, you know, everything was going well. And so I remember attending one of these cottage meetings that the elders held um, to kind of lay out the case. They spent probably about an hour and a half. Uh, you know, of how they, you know, worked for years trying to, you know, get repentance and, you know, reconciliation and um, and why they had finally come to this point. And even after all of that information, there were people in the crowd that were saying things like, if so-and-so is not our pastor, um, this isn't my church. And, you know, to yeah. me, it was so telling, uh, you know, even though at that time, you know, I myself was, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, knee deep in, in the culture of the church. Um, it just, you know, told me how shallow our church had been in, in discipling that, um, we didn't just risk losing the organization, which, you know, it's still around today, thank God, but we lost thousands of people in, in attendees, but we also had people who their discipleship or their experience of church was connected to one guy's personality. And we had done that. We had created that. We discipled them. Um, you know, to be Christians who thought that way. So if I'm, yeah. if I'm, you know, the pastor of a local church and I'm thinking, uh, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, and I'm also understanding that the grace of God has implications, what are some implications from all of this? How, I mean, first of all, just tell me, um, if you can, how could this have been prevented? You know, what could have been put in place um, at the scale of, of, of Mars Hill, uh, or maybe nothing could, but assuming something could yeah. be put in place at that scale, what is it that would have helped? Yeah, if, if I can, let me just give a little bit of context for that answer. Um, 
just a couple of weeks ago, I was with another pastor who himself, he had at one point in time had been at the top of everyone's kind of most wanted list in terms of conference speaking, ministry notoriety, until his world kind of providentially turned upside down on a Job-like scale. Uh, now, so many years on this side of that, that, that pain, that shame, he shared with me and others who were there that our desire, uh, even as, as pastors, uh, church planters, uh, you know, uh, that, that ministry idolatry, that desire and pursuit for the large, fast, and famous is a weak and unsure foundation. And, and for many of us who, who seek it, um, while we may never attain that, it just does something uh, uh, systemically to us. And then he also shared that the way of Jesus was small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. So now with that, that question of how could it have been prevented, um, well, with 2020 hindsight, I, I think diverting our gaze and course correcting those pursuits after such things very early in the church life would have probably helped considerably, I'm sure of it. Um, and many tried, but, uh, but that calling of that large, fast, and famous uh, is, is kind of like, I was thinking of it this morning, it's kind of like that adulterous woman that the good father is warning his son about in Proverbs 5. Her lips are like honey, and her speech is smooth oil. It's just intoxicating. So I, I think um, diverting our gaze from those kinds of pursuits and, and course correcting early would have helped prevent that. But I'm not sure that, um, I believe providentially it was, we were inhibited to prevent that or prohibited to prevent that um, because uh, I, I believe of what the Lord was ultimately wanting to do beyond Mars Hill. Um, mm. And that's, that's easier to say this side of it now, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, told our church this, this Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what's the, I mean, what's the blessing apart from, you know, the Lord wanting to raise this up and, you know, make it, you know, turn it into a cautionary tale, um, which that's, yeah. a, you know, I mean, that's depressing. What, what is it, you know, that, uh, okay, so I'm speaking, um, I know I didn't just, you know, finish my question there, but I'm speaking as, as someone who had a failed church plant. It, it was never big. Um, it was never even medium, um, but planted a church. It failed. Um, I left, not for disqualifying reasons, but just moved on to another season of ministry because you know the ministry was not, you know, was not um, growing, and, and I wasn't suited for it. Um, and I, I really wrestled for a while with, um, you know, with this failure. Like, is this the, you know, what lesson could I learn? Um, but I look back now. That was, you know, about twelve, ten years ago. Um, I look back now and I see some of the folks that were there, and I see some. I actually see fruit. From the death of this thing, what what are some of the you know the fruit of of this um, tragedy? Yeah, uh, in in kind of just pinpointing some of the death before we see some of the fruit. You know, our our whole theology is this out of death springs forth life kind of theology, and and when when Mars Hill was in its most critical moment of, of kind of death, the throes of death, the thousands of people were leaving. Uh, out of that were, were scores of people who uh, believed wrong things about Jesus, believed wrong things about his bride, believed wrong things about uh, just 
ministry in, in general, Christianity in general, um, we're now starting to see not necessarily all of those come back, but the churches that have been launched out of the death of Mars Hill are, are pastoring and caring and discipling and raising up uh, men and women uh, who were, uh, for lack of a better phrase, were somewhat orphaned when, mm. when Mars Hill died. And the fruit that's starting to come up is those people being brought back into the family um, and and faithful guys who are pastoring when it when it ended and those who kind of come back you know since and, and are planting other churches but with that same uh, with the same DNA that that or uh, I guess collegiality that they had before because they were part of Marcel um, really good things are, are taking place and that that's kind of what precipitated a conversation like this for me was you know, we get we, we need to learn lessons from what happened at Mars Hill, uh, but it's very easy for us to focus on Mars Hill like we would as we're as we're scrolling the channels on the TV and we get caught up in a Jerry Springer s type of you know when churches attack type of episode. <laughs> uh, but there are so many things that the Lord is doing in the death of Mars Hill that is bringing forth life. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, bullet point it, uh, you know, for us, the, you know, preventative measures. How can pastors or leaders on one end and then um, perhaps even congregations, just, you, you know, the laity of, of a local church, what can they do, practical application uh, to sort of, you know, work to prevent this sort of unhealthy culture? Yeah, I think one of the first things is that the leadership needs to be able to genuinely ask themselves kind of the, the question that you and asked a while ago is what happens if, if the lead guy all of a sudden is no longer the lead pastor? Does it change our identity? Does, it, does our mission change? Um, or even more, more of a damning question would be, you know, would our significance change, uh, whether from those within the church or those outside of the church? I think being able to ask those questions uh, are super helpful, whether you're a church, or, you know, a mega church or you're a small church, because of just the, the role that, that lead preaching pastor has. Um, I think also addressing the policies that a church has, or at least the very kind uh, of policy with which it functions. Those can be good questions, but also a warning sign. Uh, where does the power rest? Where do decisions uh, take place? And, and one, of the, one of the things towards the very end that was very obvious was that as large as Marshall was, the, the decisions came so lightning quick. And um, I think that was shocking to much of the church. I know it was shocking to, to my own uh, wife and some of the decisions that were made uh, because we weren't really talking it through uh, various forms or levels of leadership or even the church. That's a, that's a warning sign and something that I think we should avoid doing. Um but also asking, you know, of the, the lead guy, are you going to be able to submit and to be willing to be held in check alongside those that you serve? Uh, those are those are some good bullet points. A couple others that uh, I've been thinking of is going back to uh, some of the discipleship that you had mentioned. The just is there a disparity between those who attend on Sundays and those? who serve within the church or, and are in some form of community, small group, whatever. 
if there's a significant gap there, uh, and I'm talking a really significant gap uh, between those who show up and those who are actually engaged in, in the life of the church, uh, we, the elders, the leaders, pastors need to look deeply into what's at the root of it. Is it that the leadership uh, has created somewhat of a celebrity pastor problem regardless of the size? Uh, is it a ministry problem where we need to develop ministries better and more effectively? Uh, or is it a discipleship problem? We're not we're not teaching or showing or modeling the importance of those things. Uh, so those are some that that initially come to mind. Yeah, I think you know uh, you know building uh, a crowd takes uh, a different kind of you know skill set than nurturing a community or building a community, um, yeah. and and a different pace. Uh, you know, the Lord may send you know quick growth that you know you you end up you know on your heels for and. And thank God for that. But, you know, nurturing a community, actually making disciples um, tends to move, you know, more slowly and, and require more patience uh, than sort of, yeah. you, know, you know, building up a, a, an event, you know, type atmosphere, I think. Sure. I've got some young guys who uh, aspire to ministry. They feel that God is calling them and I'll hear from some of them. You know, I feel like the Lord is, is calling me to preach. And then I would ask them, but is he calling you to pastor? Because I don't want another preacher. Uh, I want somebody who will eventually be able to rightly handle the Word of God and, and to uh, uh, exhort and encourage our people. But if if that's all you're desiring, kind of a platform and notoriety or, uh, to be a part of something that you can influence, I'm not really interested in that because my my plate is too big right now to, to even care for the people that I that are under my care. I need shepherds. Yeah, shepherd to preach. That's great. We've been talking about uh, the lessons that can be learned from the fall of Mars Hill Church. We've been um, very blessed to have with us Pastor Miles Rohde uh, of Redemption Spokane. Miles, thanks so much for joining us today, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.